0: Section fifteen of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. I had hired a Bohemian as my servant while I remained in London, and being much pleased with him, I asked Dr. Johnson whether his being a Roman Catholic should prevent my taking him with me to Scotland. Footnote. He accompanied Boswell on his tour to the Hebrides. Boswell's Hebrides aux eighteen seventeen seventy three and a footnote Johnson why no, sir, if he has no objection, you can have none. Boswell so sir, you are no great enemy to the Roman Catholic religion. Johnson No more sir, than to the Presbyterian religion. Boswell, You are joking. Johnson, no, sir, I really think so. No, sir, of the two, I prefer the popish. Footnote. While he was in Scotland, he never entered one of the churches. I will not give a sanction, he said, by my presence, to a Presbyterian assembly. Ibid., August twenty seventh, 1773. When he was in France, he went to a Roman Catholic service. Post october twenty ninth, seventeen seventy five, in a footnote Boswell How so, sir? Johnson Why, sir, the Presbyterians have no church, no apostolical ordination Boswell. And do you think that absolutely essential, sir? Johnson. Why, sir, as it was an apostolical institution I think it is dangerous to be without it. And sir, so the Presbyterians have no public worship. They have no form of prayer in which they know they are to join. They go to hear a man pray and are to judge whether they will join with him Boswell. But sir, their doctrine is the same with that of the Church of England, their Confession of Faith and the Thirty-Nine Articles contain the same points. Even the doctrine of predestination. Johnson. Why, well, yes, sir, predestination was a part of the clamour of the times, so it is mentioned in our articles, but with as little positiveness as could be. Boswell. Is it necessary, sir, to believe all the thirty-nine articles? Johnson. Why, sir, that? that is a question which has been much agitated. Some have thought it necessary that they should all be believed. Others have considered them to be only articles of peace. That is to say, you are not to preach against them. Boswell. It appears to me, sir, that predestination or what is equivalent to it cannot be avoided if we hold an universal prescience in the deity johnson why sir does not god every day see things going on without preventing them boswell true sir but if a thing be certainly foreseen it must be fixed and cannot happen otherwise, and if we apply this consideration to the human mind, there is no free will, nor do I see how prayer can be of any avail. He mentioned Dr. Clark and Bishop Bramhall on liberty and necessity, and bid me read South's sermons on prayer, but avoided. The question which has excruciated philosophers and divines beyond any other. I did not press it further when I perceived that he was displeased and shrunk from any abridgment of an attribute usually ascribed to the divinity, however irreconcilable in its full extent with the grand system of moral government. His supposed orthodoxy here cramped the vigorous powers of his understanding. He was confined by a chain which early imagination and long habit made him think massy and strong, but which, had he ventured to try, he could at once have snapped asunder. I proceeded. What do you think, sir, of purgatory, as believed by the Roman Catholics? Johnson. Oh, yes, sir it is a very harmless doctrine they are of opinion that the generality of mankind are neither so obstinately wicked as to deserve everlasting punishment nor so good as to merit being admitted into the society of blessed spirits and therefore that god is graciously pleased to allow a middle state where they may be purified by certain degrees of suffering you see, sir, there is nothing unreasonable in this. Boswell But then, sir, there masses for the dead? Johnson Why, sir, if it be once established that there are souls in purgatory, it is as proper to pray for them as for our brethren of mankind who are yet in this life. Boswell The idolatry of the mass. Johnson so there is no idolatry in the mass. They believe God to be there, and they adore Him. Boswell, the worship of saints, Johnson. So they do not worship saints; they invoke them. They only ask their prayers. I am talking all this time of the doctrines of the Church of Rome. I grant you that in practice, purgatory is made a lucrative imposition and that the people do become idolatrous, as they recommend themselves to the tutelary protection of particular saints. I think their giving the sacrament only in one kind is criminal, because it is contrary to the express institution of Christ, and I wonder how the Council of Trent admitted it. Boswell. Confession? Johnson. Why, well, I don't know, but that is a good thing. The scripture says, confess your faults to one another, Footnote: in James chapter 5 verse 16, and a footnote, and the priests confess as well as the laity, then it must be considered that their absolution is only upon repentance, and often upon penance also. You think your sins may be forgiven without penance, upon repentance alone. I thus ventured to mention all the common objections against the roman catholic church that i might hear so great a man upon them what he said is here accurately recorded but it is not improbable that if one had taken the other side he might have reasoned differently i must however mention that he had a respect for the old religion as the mild melancthon called that of the roman catholic church even when he was exerting himself for its reformation in some particulars. Sir William Scott informs me that he heard Johnson say a man who was converted from Protestantism to Popery may be sincere. He parts with nothing. He is only superadding to what he already had. But a convert from Popery to Protestantism gives up so much of what he has held as sacred as anything that he retains. There is so much laceration of mind in such a conversion that it can hardly be sincere and lasting. The truth of this reflection may be confirmed by many and eminent instances. Some of them will occur to most of my readers. When we were alone, I introduced the subject of death, and endeavoured to maintain that the fear of it might be got over. I told him that David Hume said to me that he was no more uneasy to think that he should not be after this life, than that he had not been before he began to exist. Johnson sir, if he really thinks so, his perceptions are disturbed, he is mad. If he does not think so, he lies he may tell you he holds his finger in the flame of a candle without feeling pain. Would you believe him? When he dies, he at least gives up all that he has. Boswell. Foot, sir, told me that when he was very ill, he was not afraid to die. Johnson. It is not true, sir. Hold a pistol to Foote's breast or to hume's breast and threaten to kill them and you'll see how they behave Boswell, and may we not fortify our minds for the approach of death here I am sensible I was in the wrong to bring before his view what he ever looked upon with horror for although when in a celestial frame in his vanity of human wishes he has supposed death to be kind nature's signal for retreat, from this state of being, to a happier seat. Footnote. He bids us pray. For faith that panting for a happier seat counts death, kind nature's signal of retreat. End of footnote. His thoughts upon this awful change were in general, full of dismal apprehensions. His mind resembled the vast amphitheater, the Colosseum at Rome. In the centre stood his judgment, which, like a mighty gladiator, combated those apprehensions that, like the wild beasts of the arena, were all round in cells ready to be let out upon him. After a conflict, he drives them back into their dens, but, not killing them, they were still assailing him. To my question whether we might not fortify our minds for the approach of death, he answered in a passion no sir let it alone it matters not how a man dies but how he lives the act of dying is not of importance it lasts so short a time footnote to die is landing on some silent shore where billows never beat nor tempests roar ere well we feel the friendly stroke tis o'er Garth, quoted in Johnson's works, volume 6, page 61. Bacon, if he was the author of An Essay on Death, says, I do not believe that any man fears to be dead, but only the stroke of death. Spedding's Bacon. Cicero, Tusculonarum questionum, quotes Epicarmus as saying, Emorin nolo, Said me esse mortuum nihil footnote He added, with an earnest look. A man knows it must be so and submits. It will do him no good to whine. I attempted to continue the conversation. He was so provoked that he said, "Give us no more of this." And was thrown into such a state of agitation that he expressed himself in a way that alarmed and distressed me, showed an impatience that I should leave him, and, when I was going away, called to me sternly, Don't let us meet tomorrow. I went home exceedingly uneasy. All the harsh observations which I had ever heard made upon his character crowded into my mind, and I seemed to myself like the man who had put his head into the lion's mouth a great many times with perfect safety but at last had it bit off next morning i sent him a note stating that i might have been in the wrong but it was not intentionally he was therefore i could not help thinking too severe upon me that notwithstanding our agreement not to meet that day I would call on him in my way to the city and stay five minutes by my watch you are said i in my mind since last night surrounded with cloud and storm let me have a glimpse of sunshine and go about my affairs in serenity and cheerfulness upon entering his study i was glad that he was not alone which would have made our meeting more awkward there were with him Mr. Stevens and Mr. Tyres, both of whom I now saw for the first time. My note had, on his own reflection, softened him, footnote, perhaps on is a misprint for, or, end of footnote, for he received me very complacently, so that I unexpectedly found myself at ease, and joined in the conversation. He said, the critics had done too much honour, to Sir Richard Blackmore, by writing so much against him. Footnote. Johnson says of Blackmore, Works, volume 8, page 36, that he is one of those men whose lot it has been to be much oftener mentioned by enemies than by friends. and of footnote. That in his creation, he had been helped by various wits, a line by Phillips, and a line by Tickell, so that by their age and that of others, the poem had been made out. No. This account Johnson says he had from an eminent bookseller, who had it from Ambrose Phillips, the poet. The relation of Phillips, he adds, I suppose was true, but when all reasonable, all credible allowance is made for this friendly revision, the author will still retain an ample dividend of praise, Correction seldom effects more than the suppression of faults. A happy line, or a single elegance, may perhaps be added, but of a large work, the general character must always remain. Works, volume 8, page 41, end of footnote. I defended Blackmore's supposed lines, which have been ridiculed as absolute nonsense, a painted vest Prince Voltica had on, which from a naked pic, his grandsire one footnote an acute correspondent of the european magazine april 1792 has completely exposed a mistake which has been unaccountably frequent in ascribing these lines to blackmore notwithstanding that sir richard steele in that very popular work the spectator mentions them as written by the author of the british princes the honorable edward howard the correspondent above mentioned shows this mistake to be so inveterate that not only I defended the lines as Blackmore's in the presence of Dr. Johnson without any contradiction or doubt of their authenticity but that the reverend Mr. Whittaker has asserted in print that he understands they were suppressed in the late edition or editions of Blackmore. After all, says this intelligent writer, it is not Unworthy of particular observation that these lines, so often quoted, do not exist either in Blackmore or Howard. In the British Prince's octavo, sixteen sixty nine, now before me, page ninety six, they stand thus: A vest as admired Voltiger had on, which from this island's foes his grandsire won, whose artful colour passed the Tyrian dye obliged to triumph in this legacy. It is probable, I think, that some wag in order to make Howard still more ridiculous than he really was, has formed the couplet as it now circulates. Boswell. Swift, in his poetry A Rhapsody, thus joins Howard and Blackmore together. Remains a difficulty still to purchase fame by writing ill from Flecknoe down to Howard's time how few have reached the low sublime for when our high-born Howard died Blackmore alone his place supplied a painted vest Prince Baltica had on which from a naked Pict his grandsire won I maintained it to be a poetical conceit a Pict being painted if he is slain in battle, and a vest is made of his skin, it is a painted vest won from him, though he was naked. Footnote. Boswell seems to have borrowed the notion from the spectator, number 43, where Steele, after saying that the poet blundered because he was vivacious as well as stupid, continues, A fool of a colder constitution would have stayed to have flayed the pit, and made buff of his skin for the wearing of the conqueror." Of Johnson spoke unfavourably of a certain pretty voluminous author, saying, he used to write anonymous books, and then other books, commending those books, in which there was something of rascality. I whispered him, Well, sir, you are now in good humour. Johnson, yes, sir. I was going to leave him, and had got as far as the staircase. He stopped me, and smiling said, Get you gone in. A curious mode of inviting me to stay, which I accordingly did for some time longer. This little incidental quarrel and reconciliation, which perhaps I may be thought to have detailed too minutely, must be esteemed as one of many proofs which his friends have had, that though he might be charged with bad humour at times, he was always a good-natured man. And I have heard Sir Joshua Reynolds, a nice and delicate observer of manners, particularly remark that when upon any occasion Johnson had been rough to any person in company, he took the first opportunity of reconciliation by drinking to him or addressing his discourse to him. But Mrs. Piozzi, anecdotes, tells how one day at Streatham, when he was musing over the fire, a young gentleman called to him suddenly, and I suppose he thought disrespectfully, in these words, Mr. Johnson, would you advise me to marry? I would advise no man to marry, sir, retains for answer in a very angry tone Dr. Johnson, who is not likely to propagate understanding and so left the room. Our companion looked confounded, and I believe had scarce recovered the consciousness of his own existence when Johnson came back, and drawing his chair among us, with altered looks and a softened voice, joined in the general chat, insensibly led the conversation to the subject of marriage, where he laid himself out in a dissertation so useful, so elegant, so founded on the true knowledge of human life, and so adorned with beauty of sentiment, that no one ever recollected the offence except to rejoice in its consequences. This young gentleman, according to Mr Haywood, Mrs Piozzi's autobiography, was Sir John Lade, the hero of the ballad which Johnson recited on his deathbed, for other instances of Johnson's seeking a reconciliation, he post may the seventh seventeen seventy three and April the twelfth and may the eighth seventeen seventy eight in a footnote. But if he found his dignified indirect overtures sullenly neglected, he was quite indifferent and considered himself as having done all that he ought to do, and the other as now in the wrong. End of section 15.